0: Well, when human beings look at the world, there's a a paradoxical aspect to it that I think all of you can relate with. On one hand, the world that we see is so beautiful and so ordered and so awe-inspiring. And yet, on the other hand, there's also so much in the world that is ugly and confusing. There's so much in the world that's disturbing. it doesn't take long, observing life, to recognize that there is something very, very wrong with this world. And all you have to do is, is turn on the news. All you have to do is, is you know, uh, interact with people. Really, all you have to do is, is look inside yourself. To look inside your, your own heart to recognize there are a lot of things that are very wrong with this world. And that is the question that Paul is going to address. What is wrong with this universe? What is wrong with this world? Now to walk through that in our text, we're going to break it into two main points. And so we're going to look at the existence of God and the exchange of God. If you're taking notes, it's the existence of and exchange of God. For our first, first main point, I want you to notice that today's passage it's tightly connected to last week's passage, but at the same time, it introduces a new section. Romans 1 8 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven. The word for links this verse with what came immediately before it. So look again at verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. These verses are the thesis statement or summary of the whole book of Romans. And in them, Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God for the Jew and for the Greek, a.k.a. every single person in the world. He continues to explain in verse 17 that this salvation, it comes through the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God. The way that people can be made righteous before God, that's revealed to be by faith and faith alone. The only way to be made righteous and live righteously before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's thesis. That's Paul's claim. Now, that's a bold claim. It's a bold statement to say that the only way to God is by faith in Jesus Christ. How can Paul say that? How can we as Christians make that claim, especially when there are people in the world who have not yet heard about Christ? Paul, he leans right into that question, and he gives us arguably the best explanation of the bad news in the whole Bible. You see, as many of you know, the gospel means good news. But to really uh, understand and receive the gospel, to be changed by the good news, you have to first accept The bad news. Many times uh, the gospel has been compared to a diamond. It's so incredible and multifaceted. But how do you always see diamonds advertised? You always see it with a dark background. Kind of like children, children crying. It's the gospel. The gospel. It's incredible, but you won't see it. You won't see it shine. You won't be gripped by it unless you understand the darkness of the bad news, unless you understand a real condition. Maybe a a better illustration would be to, to say that you heard one day that there's been a cure to a specific type of cancer. Now, if you heard that, I assume you'd be happy. You'd think that's wonderful. But if that cancer, if it was deadly, if it was terminal, if it killed people within six months and you had it, or someone that you loved, had it, then that information, it would not be generic good news. It would be personal good news. It would be life-changing good news. And that's what, that's what understanding the bad news, that, that's what understanding our condition apart from Christ does for us. In verse 18, it introduces us to that bad news. And Paul, he's going to be very thorough. He's going to take through chapter 3, so three whole chapters, until he reaches his conclusion that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All humanity is united in our condemnation before Christ. And that explains the universal need for Christ and the urgency of the gospel. So let's look at verse 18, the introduction to the bad news. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The bad news is that God's wrath is directed towards all godless and unrighteous people. And Paul is going to carefully show that turns out to include all people, including you and me. The two things to notice from verse 18 is that God is not neutral about sin. God isn't indifferent towards the way people live. He's not loving in the way some people uh, perceive him and that whatever anyone does, he's totally fine with it. That's not true at all. God God has wrath, appropriate anger, uh, a fit, holy displeasure towards sin, towards the wickedness of this world. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice is that in verse 18, Paul implies all human beings have a real knowledge of God. All human beings have, in a very real sense, a knowledge of God. They know God. He says, people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now if human beings suppress the truth it means that to some degree we know the truth. There's a degree in which we know, know the truth but we deny it. We ignore it. And we're going to circle back later to what it means to suppress the truth. But first we need to establish what is the truth that's being suppressed? What's the truth that, that our sin suppresses? And Paul, he spells that out in verses 19 through 20. After talking about people who suppress suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, he says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. There have been whole books written on these verses. And so I want to just point out three observations from them. The first is that creation reveals our creator. Creation reveals our creator. Notice it says, since the very creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. He's he's immaterial, so he's invisible in that sense. But his attributes or what he is like, that's constantly visible for everyone to see in what he has made. Just as you can learn a lot about a musician or an artist by their art, every human being can learn a lot about God through the universe and the world that he made. In fact, when, when it says God's attributes are clearly, through, clearly seen through what he has made, that word made is poema. It's where we get our word poem. And just as good poems use structure and carefully selected language to communicate a message, God's world displays incomprehensible design and wisdom and creativity and beauty. In particular, Paul tells us that creation reveals God's eternality and power. Now, how does that happen? How, How does the universe, how does creation reveal God is eternal and powerful? Well, when I was young, one of the most compelling reasons I believed in God's existence came from a simple thought. And the thought was, where did everything come from? Where did everything come from? That's, that's not a very sophisticated thought, but I think it's a very powerful one. And the reason is that there are two, there are two things acknowledged in it. There's two things kind of implicit in that, in that that all human beings instinctively know to be true. Now, the, the first one is that, Everything that we observe, it has a cause. Everything that we can see, it, it came from somewhere, which is why everyone asks the question, where do we come from? Even kids, you know, they quickly realize, OK, I have a mommy and daddy. And so they had a mommy and daddy. And they had parents. But, but where, did, where did the first parents come from? Now, even if you subscribe to undirected Darwinian evolution, there, there is still the basic question, where did the matter come from that formed The very first human life. The very first, not even human life, but simple forms of life. You know, in high school, my biology textbook, it said that the Big Bang was, quote, a great explosion of nothingness. A great explosion of nothingness. A.K.A. everything came from nothing. Now, scientists have have worked hard to provide a better explanation than that. But the consensus, from my understanding of science, is that the universe, with its space, time, and matter, it had a definite starting point. The universe isn't eternal. And if the universe is not eternal, then where did it come from? uh, A more sophisticated way than my simple question as a child is called the, the cosmological argument. Many of you are familiar with it, but it simply says everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore the universe has a cause there is a cause to this universe. And the question is, what could have created this universe? What thing, what being must, behind, must be behind this universe? And whatever, whatever it is, this universe shows that, that it has to be immaterial. It can't be physical. It's, out, it's outside of what's created. It has to be self-existent, not dependent on anything else. And then it shows that, that this, this being, it's the uncaused cause of everything else. So it's the one behind all that exists. It's, it's, it is ultimate reality. And whatever created this universe, whatever put it in motion, what this universe makes abundantly clear is that that being is incomprehensibly powerful. In- incomprehensibly powerful to put all of this in motion, to bring all of this into existence and to sustain it. And this leads to the, the second question or the second Aspect of my question: Where did everything come from? They're tied into that, part of the the reason I wondered about that is because there is shocking power and order that's obvious in our universe and our planet. You now, for for example, all of us have had situations where we go outside on a clear night and the stars in the sky—it just takes our breath away. You know just last week. A couple weeks ago, I think, I, I had a really busy day. It was kind of nonstop, and uh, it was kind of stressful. And I was at home, and I was taking out the trash. And I walked around the corner of our garage to where our trash cans are, and I just got stopped in my tracks because the moon was out and bright. You know, the, there were tons of stars that were visible. And in, in that moment, just see, seeing that, even in the middle of the city, it just put everything in perspective because I remembered the things that seem big to me the, the things that seem stressful to me, they are not big to God. They're not stressful to him. He just, he just spoke, and billions of galaxies came into existence. Now, you know, ancient people, many of them used to worship the heavens. And it's not hard to see why when you look at how majestic they are, how awe-inspiring they are. And we know far more about the universe than they did. And we know that there are all kinds of physical constants that have to be finely tuned, that need to be perfectly aligned, like the gravitational force or the force that, that, holds, that holds atoms together. All those things have to be aligned so specifically in such a fine degree that if they were off even a little bit, our universe couldn't exist or life couldn't exist. Now, on top of the, the order and the design, it's wild to think about how vast our universe is and we don't even know how big the universe is yet. But in the observable, observable universe, there are billions of galaxies. And scientists estimate that, that every human being, and the 8 billion or so people in the world, all of us could have 11 trillion of our own stars. And that's just what has been seen so far in the universe. Now think about just one of those stars, to put it in perspective. Think about our, our sun, a, a relatively average-sized star or slightly small star. The sun is 93 million miles away. That's a long way. Now, can you go outside and look right at the sun? <laughs> you can, but you shouldn't. Kids, don't do it. I've tried. You can try. You can't stare at the sun because it's too powerful. It's too strong for us. And you know, if you're pasty like me, if you go outside without sunscreen, you're going to pay a price if you stay outside too long. The sun is powerful. Even our cars, our, our houses. You know, the sun, it can, it can break those down. It can, it can destroy them over time. See, one of our suns, I don't know if you've heard this before, one of our suns, uh, you could take 5 billion of them and put them in the largest star in the universe. <laughs> Think about that power, 5, five billion suns. And God, God is the power behind that. If you come back to just think about our planet, think about the great sequoia trees that can grow close to 400 feet tall. That's, t- that's taller than the Statue of Liberty. And then remember, where, where does that power and that strength come from? It all comes from a tiny seed that's smaller than your fingernail. God designed that. He's the power behind that. And God is the power behind mighty mountains and oceans and every thunderstorm and hurricane and volcano. He's the the designer and power behind the the vast animal kingdom with all of its brilliant diversity. You know, elephants, I just learned this recently, elephants are one of the the strongest animals in the animal kingdom. They can lift up to 20,000 pounds. So that's about the weight of a semi-truck trailer. They can just lift, lift that up. You know, whoever created and sustains this universe, he must be unimaginably powerful, all-powerful, in fact, and also all-knowing. So the cosmos and the animal kingdom, they're intricately designed and ordered. And that's, that's not just true on a big scale. It's true on a small scale as well. Did you know that one cell in your body, a skin cell, for example, so you scratch yourself, you lose hundreds of, of skin cells, you don't even think about it, one skin cell, it is more complex than the space shuttle one of your cells. You're made up of billions of cells. One of, one of those cells has more information in it than an average library. There's an order to this universe. There's a design to this universe. Even, even famous, famous atheist scientists, they concede the incredible order in the universe. Richard Dawkins, he says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Francis Crick, another famous scientist, says biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. Why do they have to constantly remind themselves of that? Why do do they have to constantly tell themselves that? Because if you just look, what you naturally assume is that there is a mind behind all, all that we see. There's a designer behind the design. There is a creator behind our creation. So creation, observation one. It truly does point to our creator. As Psalm 19 poetically puts it, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Everywhere you look in the universe, it speaks to the existence of God. It speaks to the glory of God. Second observation from this passage is that creation revelation is limited. It's limited. Verse 19, it says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. There are things that we can know about God through creation. Creation reveals God's existence and power and knowledge and wisdom and creativity. But it doesn't reveal all that could be known about God. For example, what, what about love? Is God loving? If you're a Christian, you think, of course. And do you think, does creation show that God's loving? If you're a Christian, you think, of course. There's so many things in creation that that point, point to God's love for us. But pause for a second and think, what if you didn't have the scriptures? What if you didn't have the Bible? How would you interpret cancer? How would you interpret earthquakes? How would you interpret death? Nature, it can reveal a lot to us about God, but it can't reveal everything. It doesn't reveal all that we can. No, it can only take us so far, but it is far enough that Paul says in verse 20 that creation leaves us without excuse. That's the third observation. Creation leaves us without excuse. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made, as a result, people are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that no one will have an excuse for their sin when they stand before God. No one will have an excuse because his eternal power and awesome glory glory have been made plain to all. So there is a sense in which all people know God. We're made in God's image. There's a, a, a knowledge of God that is just built in to who we are as human beings. And yet, there are other passages of Scripture that make it clear. There's another sense in which no one knows God. No one knows God savingly apart from Christ. And so there's a tension. There's, there's a sense that's built into us of where we, we recognize there's a God. We know there's a God, and yet we don't know it. We don't know it as well. We suppress that truth through our sin. And this is why there's a dissonance in all human beings. There's a, there's a dissonance that we all all have inside of us. And that's true of both atheists and theists. It's true even in Christian lives often. And that is that there are, there are things we can know about God through his world. And it's inconsistent with how we live in his world. There's, there's a tension. We can know about God. There's much we can know about God through what he's created. And it conflicts with the way that we live. And this is why we're all without excuse. It's not just that some people deny God's obvious existence. Paul is driving at something much deeper than that. And that brings us to our second main point, the exchange of God. The exchange of God, verses 21 through 23. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So why are people without excuse? Paul says in verse 20, we are without excuse, but then in verse 21, there's another four. So he's going he's to elaborate on why people are without excuse. And he says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. To not glorify God means that we don't treat him as he deserves to be treated. We don't acknowledge his power and his wisdom and that he's greater, how much greater he is than us. Instead of admitting our dependence on him and thanking him and worshiping him, all humanity has exchanged that privilege to worship other things. We we exchange the glory of God, it says, for what is created, verse 25 says, It says, they they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. This is the inexcusable exchange. This is why we are are without excuse. The universe, it points to an eternal God, an infinite God, an immortal God. And, And we suppress that and instead we worship finite things and created things, mortal things. That has been the story of humanity. And it's expressed most clearly, I think, in the Garden of Eden. But it's similarly repeated in different ways in each of our lives as well. You see, there are many verbal parallels between Romans chapter 1 and the creation and fall account in Genesis 1 through 3. You know, in those chapters in Genesis, we see the perfect garden that God created for humanity. He creates the whole universe and then a special place for human beings. And it's there that Satan tempted Eve with the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. the very first lie to Adam and Eve is that if you eat the fruit, you won't die. You're not going to die. And instead, you're going to be able to determine right and wrong for yourself. You'll be able to control your own destiny. You won't need to be dependent on God anymore. And Satan implied, God, he's withholding good from you. His commands are actually to hold you back from really becoming who you are, discovering yourself, finding real life. And so in short, the lie of Satan was, you can be your own God. You can be your own God. And we all follow our our first parents' example. Even those of us who've, who've grown up believing our whole life in God's existence. It's one thing to say that God exists. It's another thing to glorify him and and thank him as we should. And that's what all of us have failed to do. And and this is something I want to make sure none of you miss. See, Paul, in this section, he's not telling us that humanity's main problem is intellectual. It's not like if you were just smart enough, you could just look at the world and and just figure it out. That's not what Paul is saying. He does say that when when we reject God, when we suppress the truth, it does affect our thinking. But it's not, a, it's not an IQ issue. Throughout history, some of the most brilliant people who've ever lived have rejected God. It's not primarily an, an IQ thing. It's not an intellectual thing primarily. It's a moral issue. See, we want to be God. We want the place that only he rightly occupies in this universe. And because we're made in God's image, all of us have a, a sense of right and wrong. And this reaches into chapter 2 of Romans a little bit. But all of us have a moral compass that's inescapable. And Tim Keller, he, he helpfully points out that many of the, the most brilliant atheists who have, who have converted to Christianity, for many of them, it wasn't necessarily the proof of, of creation that was the thing that ultimately convinced them. Now, for some scientists, it has been as they've studied the universe. But for many, what happened is they got to a place where they realized, I have been operating as if God exists all along while denying him. You know, for, for example, when it, when it comes to morality, you know, is racism wrong? I hope you say yes. Is racism wrong? Yes. Christians say yes, and atheists say yes. And if you see racism, you say that is ugly, that is wrong. And everyone can feel that way. But what many, many thinkers have realized is that there's no actual foundation for that objectively. If we are just random molecules that have bounced together and kind of coalesced, we just happened to be human beings, then racism actually isn't wrong. Nothing is inherently wrong. You might not like it, but you can't say it's wicked. And there are many people, there are many philosophers who say that's their position. There are no moral moral absolutes. But the, the thing that many have realized is no one lives that way. People can claim to not believe in moral absolutes, No one in real life actually lives that way. There's a deep sense that all of us have, that there are things that are actually wicked, that are actually evil, and that's because they are. And that points to the reality of God. You see, instead of glorifying God as God, we seek to be God in his place. Instead of thanking him for our life and the abilities he's given us and the countless blessings we enjoy day after day, we seek to honor ourselves and take credit for for anything good that comes through our efforts, even though everything we have ultimately comes him. Tim Keller, he insightfully points out that all of us are cosmic plagiarizers. See, we constantly use the faculties God has blessed us with to try and impress others and try and reach our own goals, but we don't acknowledge the source behind any of our success that we might reach. He goes on to explain that this is one of the main ways we suppress the truth. We suppress things that we're afraid of. We suppress things that threaten us as human beings. For example, have you ever heard of, of men who will dress up in old military uniforms, even though they've never been in the military? There's guys, who will, there's guys who will dress up that way, and they'll go out, and they'll do that to try and impress girls and pick up girls. And so what, what are they doing? Well, they're faking an identity. They're pretending to be something that they're not, and they're doing that to seek honor and status that doesn't belong to him, that doesn't belong to them. And imagine if you, if you actually did that. If you, if you actually were faking to, to be a soldier, you go out. I imagine that there would be this underlying anxiety, at least at first, that you're going to get caught, that someone's going to see through the facade, see through the act. Now, may, maybe you pull it off for a while. Maybe you even get comfortable with that deception. But, but imagine you're out one night in your army uniform, and all of a sudden, in through the doors of the bar walked an actual soldier, someone in an actual uniform, and they're heading right to, the, right to the seat next to you. How are you going to feel? <laughs> your, your heart would start beating faster inside, inside. you'd start to freak out, and you'd think to yourself, I'm going to be exposed. How, how do I get out of here? How, how do I avoid him? Because you might be able to, to fool civilians but you're not gonna be able to fool an experienced soldier. And so you would be threatened because you're going to be exposed. And that is what the knowledge of God in creation does to us. See, when we get a glimpse of God in creation, it threatens us and even terrifies us because it reminds us that we're frauds. It reminds us that our identity is built on a lie, that we can take God's place and live however we want, worship whatever we want, even though our very life is a gift from Him. And this is exactly what happened in my life. See, I I never remember a time where I didn't believe in God's existence. I grew up going to church every week and praying before every meal. I never had a a wild season of, of rebellion in my life and was respected in the church. But at the same time, I didn't glorify God or give Him thanks. I lived for my own glory, and I exchanged the glory of God for the praise of man, for a good reputation. The main goal of my life was to be successful and popular and respected by others. And since my primary relational context was the church, I even used my knowledge of the Bible and of God to pursue those ends. Despite being popular at both school and and at church, I was disrespectful to my parents. I was a pathetic brother, and I was a self-absorbed and insecure Friend, And there were times where I would see that. There there are times when the reality of my inner world would be exposed, but I had to to quickly suppress it because it threatened my whole identity. It it threatened the idols that I had built my life around. Now when I got to college, what happened was I, I was surrounded every single day by other people who loved Jesus, by people who were actually grateful to him. I was surrounded by people who were living to glorify God. And the more I was around them, and the more I read the Bible, the more convinced I became that God saw my inner world. He saw that I was a fraud. And I began to sense how serious my idolatry was. Now, that was by far the most unsettling and stressful time of my life because I realized how ungrateful and entitled I'd been my whole life for how God had incredibly blessed me. I saw that I had completely failed to worship God, even though he was obviously worthy of it. And during that time, I couldn't deny God's existence. There there were times I wished that I could. I couldn't deny God's existence, but the thought of God horrified my soul because I could see how selfish I was. I could sense how, how sinful I was and how much I deserved his wrath. I was without excuse and guilty before God. And so are you. So are you. That, that is the point of this passage. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. When most people think of sin and wickedness, they automatically think of extremely violent or deviant behavior. But that's not Paul's starting point. Instead of sin, instead sin begins in our heart. No, all sin is, is first internal before it's external. And all sin, when you trace it to its source, it's ultimately a worship issue. Now we're going to dig a lot deeper into worship and idolatry next week. But at a, at a high level, you worship whatever you think will bring you life. You can think about it as the three S's. You worship the things you think will bring you satisfaction and security and significance. Now, my guess is that probably none of you here have bowed down to a statue. A statue of people, a statue of animals. You've probably never done that. But the Bible is clear that, that an idol can be anything. It can be anything that you love and value more than God, anything that you put above God in your heart. And based on that definition, all of us have worshiped idols. And we do it daily. We do it daily, even as Christians. Now, my hope for you is that you have seen, at least gotten a sense for how perverse and wicked our idolatry is in light of, of God's glory that's displayed in creation. You see, when we worship idols, we treat the God who gave us life and keeps us alive as disposable. And we treat the one who has given us every good thing we've ever experienced as less important than us in our our ambitions. Instead of of being thankful to him and grateful to him, we dishonor him and disrespect him. And we continue to, to corrupt this broken world by our actions. Verse 18, it's interesting. It says that God's wrath is already being expressed toward those who suppress the truth. and verse 24, which we'll unpack more next week, it shows that God is expressing his wrath currently by giving people what they want, by giving people over to their desires. He allows them to experience firsthand what they want because he knows it'll show it doesn't lead to life and freedom, but it'll actually lead to emptiness and bondage. Oscar Wilde He's a poet, and he famously said, When the gods want to curse a man, they give him what he wants. They give him what he wants. Often the worst thing that we could get, the worst thing that, that God could do to us is just give us over to our desires. Now, one pastor, he insightfully pointed out, though, that the wrath of God is being revealed now. That wrath is mixed with mercy. And it's mixed with mercy because there's still time to repent before the day of of God's wrath described in chapter 2. On that day, God will grant sinners what they tragically want, which is existence apart from his personal presence. God will grant people that, but it will not be a good thing. That, That will be experienced in hell. God's wrath is being revealed now. It will be fully expressed on the day of judgment, though, against all who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And again, Paul makes it clear that's all of us. And so what hope is there for people like us? What hope is there for people who suppress the truth by our sin? Well, there's no hope if you look at creation. If you just look at at creation, the eternal power of God expressed there, that only makes the day of judgment more terrifying. Have you thought about that before? If you're going to stand before the God of the universe and he is angry at your sin, he is offended by your sin, Nature is not comforting when you consider that. As profound as creation is, we need an even deeper revelation of God to save us, and that is what the revelation of Christ is. See, Christ is God in the flesh, and he reveals to us what creation alone could never definitively answer, and that is, does God love you? Does does your creator care about you? What's What's God's heart towards sinners like us who suppress the truth. Does God God care about your life? Or does God actually want to pour out his wrath on you? Is that God's preference? Well, to answer that question beyond all shadow of a doubt, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and he was punished in your place. Romans 5.8 famously says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died knowing that we would dishonor him, knowing that we'd worship idols, knowing we'd suppress the truth. He knew every sin that we'd commit before going to the cross, and he went there anyway. He went there so that we could experience forgiveness. He went there so that we could experience a restored relationship with him. He went there, Ephesians says, so that by faith in the grace of God, we can be made God's workmanship, or poema. See, God wants Christians to be his masterpiece. God wants Christians to show people the difference of those who have come to know him or who are walking with him. And that relationship, it's only by faith. Because again, the the whole section here in Romans is to prove that salvation and righteousness before God have to be received by faith. Because if, if God gave you what you deserved, it would be his wrath. All of us are guilty and without excuse. But for those who put their faith in Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. And God wants our lives to show that to the world. Because if you see God's heart in Christ, what will happen is it will begin to free your heart from the desire to be God of your own life. When you understand what God is actually like, you'll, you won't want to be God anymore. But you'll want Him to be in control. You'll want, you'll want His His rule in your life. You know, it's insane to function as the God of our own life in a universe that clearly points to a God. But the reason we do it is because we don't trust Him. We think, I, I need to get my way. I-, I need to be in control. And what the gospel shows us is that God, He's not just aware of your life. He's, God doesn't just know what's best for you. God wants what's best for you. And He proved it on the cross, Jesus said, "Whoever wants to save their life, they'll lose it. If you try and maintain control, if you try and hold on to your life, if you if you insist on being your own God, Jesus says, you'll miss it. You'll miss life. He says, but those who lose their life, they'll find it. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. God, we thank you that." This world points so clearly to your existence. And God, I pray we'd be more impressed by you. I pray we'd be just reminded of you more often in what you've made. And at the same time, God, I pray that there just be a, a, a more uh, just profound sense of, of gratitude, God, that, that you have dealt with our biggest problem, God, that you really love us, and that, God, you, you want us to walk with you. You want us to experience your love. God, you, you want us to experience the freedom of walking with you. And so, Lord, we pray that, again, each person here is in different spots. And Lord, we ask that you would take the truths that we have, we've looked at today, and we pray that your, your spirit, God, would communicate what each person needs needs to hear. And so we thank you for this time. Pray this all in your great name. Amen. We're going to continue.